What was Jesus saying when he told people he's the bread of life? That's the question we're discussing today on the Hero of the Story presented by The Gospel Project. Thanks for joining us for today's episode of The Hero of the Story, a podcast to help you explore the big story and big truths of Scripture. I'm Aaron Armstrong, and with me, as always, is Brian Dembozik. Brian, today we are discussing a super simple, easy-to-understand moment in (laughs) Jesus' ministry uh, found in John chapter 6. Uh, I'm, uh, and it's actually one that we, we actually referenced a little bit, a, a, a few weeks ago. Um, so we're kind of having a little bit of a time travel moment as well. Well, we've been kind of doing that from episode to episode, bouncing around some in the gospel narrative. That's true. Anyway. We have been doing that for, you know, the last six months or so, <laughs> but that's okay. <laughs> that's okay. What is time anyway? What is yeah. time right now? That is too deep of a question for this time That's of the true. day. That's true. We are recording on a Thursday afternoon, which means we're getting sleepy. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> so Brian, we are talking about uh, John chapter 6, 47 through 71. So how about you uh, set up some context for this? And then, um, then I'll read the passage, and then we'll start asking, start talking through some questions. Sounds good. And, and this passage, like many we've been talking about, uh, you know, we're kind of joking about bouncing around, but we have been. We've, we've been kind of somewhere near the middle of Jesus' ministry to the latter part, and we'll kind of keep moving back and forth a little bit. This one, we are going back toward the, the middle of the, of the three years. Now, when you think of the middle of the three years, it's not quite the same as the middle of the action because Jesus' ministry for the first year kind of starts out slowly and then it builds and then it, it just speeds up. This passage, this, this event actually occurred right as that ministry is beginning to pick up. So it's the middle of the three years, but it's really, one can look at it and say it's kind of early still in the ministry of Jesus, but time has passed. And that's going to be important to understand what we're encountering here. This passage, though, like many, is one where you really have to understand what leads into it. And John 6 seems to be in in pretty tight chronology. You can kind of just read Mm -hmm. it and it follows along. And so if you kind of just looking at the high level, the the chapter begins with Jesus traveling to Bethesda, uh, John 6, 1 through 3. And then he feeds the 5,000 plus. We've talked about that on a prior episode, and that's important. It's going to come back into to play with the discussion that's happening here. Then right after that, of course, the people try to make him king for the wrong reasons, not because he is the son of God, the Messiah, but because he just did something amazing. He fed them. That was impressive. Let's make him king. That evening, he, he avoids that. That evening is, is when he walks on water and calms the storm. We've had an episode on that as well. And then he heals some people nearby. That's not recorded in John, but Matthew 14 and Mark 6 pick that up. And then right after that, the crowds chased him down. So the next day, they, they wake up. They realize Jesus is gone because, again, he had, he had walked on water overnight to where the disciples were. So when they wake up the next day after feeding the 5,000 and so forth, they recognize he's gone. So they chase after him. They jump in boats and everything. <laughs> they go after him. And they circle around, and they find him uh, that next day. And that takes us to John 6, 22. And from this point, you have this long 
uh, dialogue that is mostly a monologue. If you have a red letter Bible, it's a mm-hmm. lot of red here. Uh, interjections of the people as they kind of ask questions or, or have a follow-up. But you re- this is just a lot of, it's almost like a monologue um, of Jesus addressing this group. And here's what he's doing. It's, it's, it's important you understand this as we get to the passage we're looking at. He sees them and he's challenging them of why they're following him. And he basically, in verse 26, says, you're just, you're just after me because you saw some great things and, and I fed you. And in verse 27, he turns around and says, you should not be fi- following me for food that feeds you for just a short period of time. You should be following me for food that endures to eternal life. And so here's where he starts to get them to think beyond the physical, the immediate. In verse 30, after he shares a little bit more, the people come back and ask for a sign. And in response, he mentions manna from heaven in the wilderness back Mm -hmm. in Exodus. And that really begins this longer discourse that leads into verses 47 through 71 that we're going to look at. Yeah, and so here is that discourse. He says, starting in verse 47, and this is read from the CSB translation, uh, Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the, up on the last day, because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It's not like the manna your ancestors ate and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue at, in Capernaum. Therefore, when many of his disciples heard, heard this, they said, This teaching's hard. Who can accept it? Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, asked them, Does this offend you? Then what if you were to observe the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? The Spirit is the one who gives life. The flesh doesn't help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life. But there are some among you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning those who did not believe and those who would betray him. He said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it's granted by the Father. From that moment, uh, many of his disciples turned back and no longer accompanied him. So Jesus said to the twelve, don't you want to go away too? You don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered, "Lord, Lord, to whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus replied to them, Didn't I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. He was referring to Judas, Simon Iscariot's son, one of the twelve, because he was going to betray him. So there's a lot going on in this passage, um, and and a lot is an understatement, of course. 
Uh, the disciples, despite being despite being grumbly, were right to say this is a hard teaching. Uh, but yep. it is, and and it's one of those ones that because it's hard, we can very often gloss over the things that are there, uh, and we don't want to do that. That doesn't make us good students of the Bible, and it doesn't and it doesn't help shape us into the people that that God is wanting to make us as we. Um, as we learn from his word and are, and are transformed by his spirit. So um, in light of that, what are some questions that we should be asking when we are reading and studying this particular passage? I think the first one is a pretty broad question. That's not in the text itself, but the bigger idea. And it, it seems here, again, that this crowd chasing after Jesus and he does something that's counterintuitive to us. We would expect him at this point to reply in a positive way, welcome these people. I mean, look, they've showed initiative to follow him. That's what he mm-hmm. came for, right? To, to draw a following. And so it seems that he would be glad, but he almost seems grumpy at this point. He almost, he, you know, he, he kind of he just kind of puts him and says, wait a minute, what are you doing here? Why are you here? You're here for the wrong reasons. So it seems like he's chasing mm-hmm. people away more than he's drawing people to himself. And so I think that's the first question is, why did it seem that Jesus was making it difficult for people to follow him? Um, and it's a really important question. We see it here. We see it elsewhere in Luke 9 and 14, a couple other accounts where people wanted to follow Jesus and, and you know, he one, hey, uh, I'm not going to have a play to, place to sleep, and you're not either, and, you know, go let the dead bury their own dead and um, count the cost and so forth. Um, it, there are several times where he intentionally seems to make it more difficult for people to follow him than easier. And this is really important. It's because he wants to dispel any notion of what we might today call it mm-hmm. easy believism. That all you have to do is to believe in some general sense of who Jesus mm-hmm. is and you'll be fine. What he doesn't want is he doesn't want superficial followers. And, and he recognized that people were following him for the wrong reasons. He recognized they, they were after a show. They wanted food from him literally. They wanted entertainment. They wanted to be healed. Uh, they wanted political deliverance. They wanted all these things. They wanted mm-hmm. to use Jesus. So they weren't after Jesus. They were after what Jesus could do for them. So superficial. That does not bring him glory, but here's the thing we can't miss. Those people were still on a path to destruction because they weren't coming to Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who can provide forgiveness of sins. They were coming to him as the one who can provide all these other things. So out of love, He's going to challenge them. He's going to push back, and he's going to just explode any notion they have of their superficial nature and view of who Jesus is or what he could do for them. They needed to understand fully what it meant to follow Jesus, who he is, and what it meant to follow him. And that's why he goes to great length, it seems, to kind of just First, their, their bubble and their thoughts that here's this great guy who's going to provide cool stuff for me and give me a great life now. And he did that. He burst that bubble in a, in, a re, in a way that's really hard for us to understand. 
which is really what leads to the question that that, that I get to address. So thank you for that, Brian. Um, <laughs> so this question is, did Jesus mean that people literally have to eat his flesh and drink his blood? And that's not a hard question. Uh, well, it's it's the stumbling block, though, in this in this whole thing. I mean, the answer itself, in in some ways, is very simple because the answer is no, of course not, no. No, but the answer is also more complicated than that. So Christians are not called to be cannibals. We know we know this to be true. Okay, however, people on the outside don't understand this. Don't understand this language, and to be honest, most Christians in a modern context don't understand it either. So historically, one of the one of the ways that um, op- opposition to Christianity was stoked was actually accusations of cannibalism. They heard about this thing about eating eating flesh and drinking blood, and they didn't know what it meant. So, and because outsiders weren't allowed in the you know within Christian worship. Um, largely because it was kind of dangerous for uh, for the Christians if outsiders were coming in, so um, everything was was much more closed than it is today. But um, but they would hear about this, they would not know what it meant, and so they would assume cannibalism. So um, logical assumption. Uh, what flesh and blood is, though, the way Jesus is using it is is he's using it. Um, it's really a Hebrew idiom for the total person. And so it's it's really that all of like it's it's really another way of saying Jesus is your life here. Um that all that you have that all that your life exists because Jesus is alive. That's what that's kind of the big idea, the the big e on the on the i chart there, if you will. So um so a person must accept fully who Jesus is, is, is the big statement here that we need to get out of this. And this is what Jesus is coming across and trying to say, is it's not about what Jesus can do. It's about who he is and what he has done. Um, or in the, in the right. chronological sense of where he was at this point in, uh, in the Gospels, what he was about to do. Um, this connection... Um, he was making this connection to uh, with between God's provision and salvation, and so as well that this idea um, in the in the Exodus that um, manna was a provision from heaven and it saved them from physical death death that is starvation, and that's a good thing. But it wasn't everything in the Gospels. There's this deep. There's this next level that's happening that Jesus is the provision from heaven to save from spiritual death. So sin, um, and this is, and so he is, he is what the manna was foreshadowing. So you've noticed I've, I've said, this is what's going on about multiple things at multiple different, in multiple different ways about this one thing that Jesus was saying. And this, this, again, this goes to that point that, what he was doing was so multifaceted. So yes, he was not literally saying that people have to eat his flesh and drink his blood to um, to be his disciples, but he was saying a lot of different things by saying that in in saying this one thing about him being 
the bread of life and eating his flesh and drinking his blood, that he is the whole of our lives and that he is this great fulfillment of God's provision um, that is seen in the Exodus to this greater degree and that we are to accept him for who we, that salvation comes only by accepting him, not by accepting just what that he can do. Yeah. And that really takes us to the next question of why the people, even the disciples struggled to understand what Jesus said. And, and again, as you kind of talk through it and think through the, the complex levels here, I mean, it starts with understanding that he was not speaking literally. And then even if you get that, then you have to connect the dots back to access, which he puts on the table for, for the listeners, but still you have to make that connection. And then you have to understand that manna was not just a way to fill bellies. There was, God was picturing something deeper there. He was pointing toward Christ so you have to have all these understandings to begin to understand this. And so practically, we need to extend grace to the audience because what they were hearing, they were hearing for the first time. They, they did not have the advantages that we have, the full scriptures that they can draw from. Many of us have years and years of reading these scriptures. We have commentaries. We have sermons. We have so many helps that have helped us connect these dots. Um, they lack those things. So on one hand, we have to be a little bit gracious and recognize we too probably would have struggled with this even more than we do now had we been one of the uh, people in the crowd that day. But there's another reason that Jesus actually points to directly, and it is this. There, there's a spiritual reason and because Jesus says, look, you're struggling with this because the Spirit is the one who guides to truth. Uh, this isn't about verses 60 through 64 or so, 65. The Spirit guides us to truth. And this is why it doesn't make sense to the people of the world. You think about it. Um, I've had this happen, Aaron. You, were, you came to Christ as an adult, so you might be able to draw from personal mm -hmm. experience. But there have been times where I've been talking with an unbeliever who is sincerely baffled by the gospel, not because they're dense, uh, not because they're trying to be hard-headed or hard-hearted. It's simply they just don't understand it. It is beyond their ability mm -hmm. to understand. But it's, uh, it's plain to us. And it's one of those times where it's like, do you don't understand this? It's so obvious. It's so clear. Well, the reason is not because, again, they are less intelligent than we are or we are somehow more intelligent than them. It's, it's because we have the Spirit. And the Spirit is yeah. the one who has opened our minds and our hearts to the truth. He has taught us what is true. It is only by His provision that we grasp the gospel and grow in the gospel. So that is the difference maker. He is the difference maker. And that's what Jesus is saying. It's no surprise. We should not be surprised that people scratched their heads and said, this is too hard. Even if some of us look at this and say, well, no, I mean, it's a little bit challenging, but it's, I mean, it's not mm -hmm. calculus. Um, it's because the Spirit was not guiding them and, and they were not prompted by the Spirit and, and, and their hearts and minds were not open. That is the difference maker. And again, we're going to see in a minute, the disciples are still growing in this. They're closer, but they're yeah. still not there. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you do you do see in in this passage that a whole bunch of people who were Jesus' disciples yeah. walk away. 
And so that kind of leads into this next question be, uh, because we see him uh, we see him say to we see him say to the, to the 12. Um, now that doesn't mean that the 12 were the only ones who didn't walk away. It just means that he he chose to address them specifically because they were his inner circle. Yes. Um, this is um, as a side note, this is one of those things that people need to be really, really, thoughtful in their reading of the gospels and the early chapters of acts as well on is this question of how many disciples did Jesus have? There is a tendency to downplay and equate the 12 with all of the disciples. The problem is, is that the 12 are a unique subset of all of his disciples. That's why they have the title of apostle and the rest do not. So they are they're the ones who he is choosing to specially invest in. And then you see, even with his relationship within the 12, that there that there seems to be, and conversely, people make make to make more of this than they probably should as well. But there seems to be a special subset within the 12 as well, with Peter, James, and John. Um, and then you see that John is the is the uh, the one whom the Lord loves <laughs> um, to a greater degree, like this is his best friend kind of thing. Um, and so there is there. But when we see this, we do need to remember that there were there were periods of time when there were um, no less than 120 who were following Jesus. Um, certainly at the certainly at the ascension. There, there was at least there was in and around that range because that's about the that's about the number that Acts describes as being in the upper room when they're waiting for the for the Spirit and praying that there's over a hundred people involved in that event, so it's not like it's it's not like it's this small group of twelve who radically changed the world in that moment. It's a lot more, but um, still not, that's still my not hobby a ton horse. More. So uh, back to the yeah. question. It's still a pretty small, but it's more than but twelve. More than 12 yeah. It's larger than the average church. That's true. That's true. Which is an encouragement for our churches. There we go. Um, absolutely, absolutely. Church size, attendance size, is not has no bearing on fruit. That one's also for free. So, um, <laughs> so all of this goes back into this this question. You've got you've got disciples who are leaving. You've got. Um, You've got the 12 who are there. We don't know how many else were there, but Jesus turns to them and says, are you guys leaving too? And then Peter makes this statement and he says, well, to whom, who else are we going to follow? What? You've got the words of what eternal life. What do we have? We're not, yeah. We're, like, is there someone else we should be? <laughs> um, so it's it's one of these statements, when we read this question, um, that his response, because you can, you can read this and there's almost this little bit of like, depending on how you read and you're in, how you're inclined to read, you can pick up on almost a little bit of sarcasm here that it's like, well, who are we going to go to? I mean, think about how, like, maybe it's just my personality. So, but, um, but you can read it in a very sincere way. And, and I think that's a fair thing to do. But regardless, um, when Peter usually speaks up, typically he's putting his foot in his mouth. Is he doing that here? And the answer is nope. 
he nailed it in this moment. This is one of those moments when we get to stand up and cheer for Peter because he got it. And he and um, you also get to start to see this interesting relationship dynamic that's happening within the 12 because he's the one who spoke up, but he's speaking up for all of them because he's saying, we, where are we going to go? Not where, where else would I go? Um, which would have been a valid thing for him to say as well. Instead, he was speaking on behalf of all the 12. But even though he has this bright, shining moment, that doesn't mean that he or all the other 12 are going to get it either at this moment. They still don't understand this. I mean, we see how um, Peter's going to have a major setback just a little bit later down the road. And he does it again and again. And he he's, he's this stumbling toward sanctification and understanding that um, really we can all relate to. Um, but the thing that we should take away from this is, is that the 12 understood a little bit more than some of the other disciples. And they understood a little more than the crowds. Um, their, their understanding, their view of Jesus was, was starting to come into focus in around this time. They knew enough um, and and they knew enough at this point that despite any kind of confusion that they had over this hard teaching, because remember, they're the ones who called it out. They said, this is a hard teaching. Who can understand it? So they were confused too. But they but even despite their confusion, they were committed to Jesus. Yeah, and that's why it, it's helpful for this one to know where it's occurring in the, the general timeline of, of Jesus' ministry, that halfway point but the ministry is just beginning and that's why it's so important that they had seen enough they had encountered enough already before this to reach that conclusion that jesus is unique he's special he's not just another person he's not just a good rabbi but they still were not far enough along to recognize in fullness what it meant that jesus is the son of god and what the messiah truly is and so that that's crystallizing for them. So they're moving in that journey, but we have to give them credit. At this earlier point, they are, it, it seemed, they're committed. They're locked in, even if they don't quite fully understand, which is a great principle we're going to get to when we talk about how we can take this passage and use it for guidance of others. But one other question I think, just to touch on real briefly, is Judas. We, we see him mentioned a couple times near the end of this passage. And it seems like Jesus says, well, it doesn't seem, he does say that he chose Judas. And so the question is, why would Jesus choose Judas as a follower if he knew that Judas would betray him? And again, it doesn't require a, a long, elaborate answer. It's a pretty simple answer, and it's because of this. Judas was there to fulfill God's plan. We know that Jesus came ultimately to be rejected by his people and crucified to be the sacrifice for our sins. And so Judas played a significant role in that process. So, so Jesus chose him knowing because Judas was this important instrument in his rejection that was coming up a uh, year and a half after this. There we go. That is, that is an, that's a good point because people wonder, I think, I think I, I certainly remember when I was, 
trying to figure out this whole this whole Christianity thing and trying to figure out what the Bible's talking about when when whenever Judas came up it was like okay why is this guy here and understanding that that this was that he was there for the explicit purpose yeah to of God's plan of redemption being completed and fulfilled and completed that is a huge deal yeah and this is a passage an interesting one also because a lot of people will ask the question was judas saved and i think you have some that would Mm -hmm. argue he was and others of course would argue he was not binary decision this passage is one that i kind of look at and and conclude myself that he was not um i i would lean toward no on that for sure this passage just read i mean he's called the He's called a devil here by Jesus. It, it, it talks about him, um, you know, except, you know, uh, with this mm-hmm. exception, he's kind of set apart from the 12. So even Peter, who we've talked about, he's, he would deny Jesus three times, but we don't really see him accepted from the 12. Uh, but Judas, he does seem to be removed from them. And so from this and, and some other passages, I, it, to me, it seems that G- mm-hmm. Judas was not saved, but... Hey, we'll find out for sure one day. It's, it seems to be. Totally. Well, and I think one of the things that's very interesting is, is when, you read the, when you read John's gospel in relation to the others, you do, do see uh, he has, he puts a very specific emphasis on mm-hmm. Judas um, in a way that the others don't. Um, and so all of them get around to saying at some point that this is the one who is going to betray Jesus. Um, but John is like John, and maybe it's because of the proximity that he had in his, in his personal relationship with Jesus, that there was um, a greater degree of hostility there. Um, because he's the one who calls out the fact that, you know, when, um, uh, when the the when Jesus was was anointed by by the woman with this expensive perfume, John's the one who calls out that Judas did that it was Judas who said this could have been sold for the poor, and then follows it up with, but he didn't really care about that because he was stealing from everybody. Well, and it makes sense because think about it. You know, <laughs> so you, you mentioned John refers to himself in his gospel as the one whom Jesus loves. So part of it is. I suspect mm-hmm. John not saying I'm the only one, but it's just his way of uh, of being a little bit humble instead of calling himself by name when he has to be a part of what's going on. Uh, but John yeah. does seem to be, he seems to, to be really um, deeply connected with his emotions of following Jesus. Um, and because of that, and also he was the only one who lingered around the crucifixion itself. Now, he was not there the whole time. He kind of went and came and went a couple of times. But all the other disciples bailed. John was the only one. And so here you have this guy who seems to be a little bit more in touch with his emotions, uh, recognizing the love Jesus had for him, of course, his love for Jesus. And then he saw more of the, the crucifixion itself, that painful, horrific death. It kind of makes sense that he would have a bone to pick with Judas in light of that. So we meant you, you, because of what you did, you betrayed, you kissed him on the cheek, which led to this. I had to watch the one I love up there. So it kind of makes sense that John would, it, it'll be interesting when we are in eternity, we can pull John aside and say, Hey, let's talk for a minute and 
What, what do you really think about Judith? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm looking forward to being able to do that someday. <laughs> In this, and maybe that'll be the same time we figure out if he's actually oh, yeah. there. So, uh... <laughs> Well, if Judas, if Judas comes up behind us and say, here, I'll give you my two cents, then that totally, I'll have to apologize to Judas and said, man, I thought you were, I thought you were lost. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all right. So, um, so speaking of uh, lost, we don't want to get lost in the weeds here too much longer, but uh, we do want to think about this passage from a discipleship perspective. So what kind of guidance can we offer our listeners in working through uh, this section of John's gospel with others? I think the first one is this big idea of not being afraid or avoiding harder teachings in Scripture. Um, you know, you think about you, you're discipling somebody, maybe you're just walking through books of the Bible, maybe you're using a resource, a curriculum, or some other teaching plan, or whatever you're doing, and, and, and probably you're, it's not going to be long until you come across something that is more challenging, and you have, a, you have a choice at that point. Do you skip it, or do you dive into it? And I think this passage encourages us uh, not to be so quick to skip over. I think there could be wisdom, a brand new believer or, or a young child, for example, who is a believer, that there may be wisdom on delaying some of the harder things, uh, but mm-hmm. that's only for a short window. We can't keep putting it off. We, we have got to trust that the spirit who guides to truth will guide and protect the person we're discipling and help him or her come to somewhat of an understanding. But at the same time, we need to give the people we're discipling or the person we're discipling room to wrestle with this. We need to be patient. Uh, especially if mm-hmm. you are discipling and, and maybe, you know, you've been walking with, with Christ for a while. Maybe you have a lot more of this figured out. And some of this has become more, for lack of a better word, elementary to you. And sometimes it's hard to remember what it was like before that when it was a challenge. And so there are times where we might become impatient or expect somebody to grasp something more quickly. And we need to remember that no, we need to be patient and give not only room for that person to wrestle and grapple, but also time for that person. But we are not helping them if we never dabble into these harder passages. It's these harder passages, a lot of them have beautiful truths and it stretches us, it grows us, it reminds us of our need of the spirit as we study, so it keeps us humble. Mm-hmm. There are many, many wins, so we should not avoid these harder passages. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think going along with that, uh, before we get to our, our next thing, uh, when we think about harder passages, this is one of the things that I, I'm really glad that I serve in kids ministry mo- most often in, uh, in my church for, is because teaching, um, teaching to younger kids requires you to understand things well. Because you have to un- you have to know what you're talking about to explain something simply. And so that's one of those key reasons why you don't want to skip these things because if you know it, you're going to be able to, you're going to be able to explain this to others. And that means that you need to take patient, you need to be patient with yourself too as you wrestle through understanding and learning how to boil this complex thing down into 
even a sentence or two. So uh, the the next thing, though, that I, that I would say is, is that um, along with all of that is that we need to follow Jesus as he truly is and not who we want him to be. And that is a that is a core tension that is in the Gospels is Jesus was not the Messiah that the people wanted, but he was the Messiah that they needed. And so um, it's kind of uh, do you, did you ever watch Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight movies? I've seen parts of them. Maybe I've seen them all. Um, OK, apparently they were not memorable if I have. Well, that just means you haven't seen them because they're quite fabulous, but um, they're also pretty dark. But uh, I don't what have I would time say for watching is... movies. I'm too busy praying and reading the Bible every Friday night. Got it. Got it. Thank you for uh, thank you for proving that you are in fact holier than I am. So I mean, it's not that hard, but <laughs> but there is uh, but there is this line that is that is in the movie that is that's talking about Batman being the um, uh, not the not the hero that the people needed uh, deserve, but the the hero that they needed, kind of thing. And so there's a little bit of where that there where that in a very reachy kind of way feels a little bit close to what's going on in the Gospels with Jesus. That he is not the he's definitely not the Messiah they deserved, and that any of us deserved. He's not the Savior that any of us do. But he's the one that we absolutely need, and thankfully, he's the one that we get. So, um, so really, this is just a reminder that Jesus' identity, who he is, is the core question that the Gospels are answering. John's Gospel is answering this, and John's Gospel is answering it from the perspective of Jesus being the Son of God, being God himself. It's that divine, that divine perspective is first and foremost there. Um, Matthew is looking at it from the perspective of the fulfillment of, of the, the messianic promises to the Jews. He's the promised son of David. Um, Mark is looking at him as the king. <laughs> um, um, uh, Luke is looking at him as the, as the second Adam <laughs> and, and all of these things and, and more besides, <laughs> So the so you get this total picture of who Jesus is from all of them and it's and it's fantastic and mind-blowing. And so what we need to do is is we need to fight to grow our in our understanding of him based on what scripture says about him and not on our preferences, our culture, our theological frameworks, um what books are being published and honestly even what bible studies we use. So, um, so start with scripture and let and everything else needs to be subservient to that. And so, and we would say that about, about the Bible study that we work on the gospel project. It's not, it's not the tool to interpret scripture through. It's a tool to help guide you as you are studying the Bible period. And that's, that's, that's the purpose of a good Bible study. I tell people. It's not to tell you yeah, what to I tell to people think. all the time, you know, when they say, hey, we teach the Bible or gospel project. I said, no, you don't. You teach the gospel using the gospel project as a resource. And it's a really yeah. important distinction that, you know, we want our, our people to understand that, no, you, you are not uh, 
in a box where you have to do whatever's in the resource. It is designed to equip you to better teach scripture. And we hope it does that, of course. We hope that it makes it that much mm-hmm. easier, that much better. But it is just that. It's, it's a resource pointing it toward the scripture itself. So I think th- That's th- right. this takes us to the, right. the last question or the last um, suggestion that I would have for us as we're discipling others. And it's this, that we need to celebrate the wins with those who we are discipling. And I think of Peter here. Um, you know, we, you and I, we, we will often joke about Peter because I think we love him so much because we're so much like him or uh, we can relate with him that the guy was always messing up. Uh, you, you just want to pat the guy on the head so often as you're reading the Gospels. But here he, he had a win. Um, he stood forward. He declared this beautiful truth uh, about who Jesus is and, and what Jesus offered in reality versus what the people considered. And we should celebrate that. When we come across this, we should cheer for Peter and say, yeah, you got it this time. Um, And so as we're discipling others, we have to understand they're going to have times they're going to mess up just like we mess up. Uh, They're going to disappoint us. They're going to frustrate us. They're going to get it wrong at times. And we need to deal with that in in a loving way, of course. Uh, But let's not miss the times that we can celebrate them. Let's be encouragers for those we're discipling. When they get something, even if it seems small from our perspective, let's celebrate in, in sincerity, not, you know, not playing it up or anything like that and, and being insincere. Yeah. Sincerely, because we, we, we want to be advocating for them. We want to love them so much that it genuinely gives us joy when we see them progress in their faith, no matter how big or small of a step they may have just taken. And so we just want to be encouragers we want to come alongside them and celebrate with them and keep them motivated moving forward and and be those those men and women who are discipling who say yeah you can do this with the spirits prompting with with him guiding you to truth with with him uh framing how you're living day by day of course but God is doing something in you and through you, and we celebrate with you. So I think that's a really important takeaway that we, we don't want to miss here. Most definitely. There, is, there are a few things that are more, really more, more powerful than someone, in, someone who's in some kind of relationship with you in your church, your, say in your small group or um, you know, in a class or like just a friend, anything coming up and just saying, hey, this is how I see God at work in you. It's an incredible thing. So uh, I would definitely, definitely encourage celebrating as much as we can because we need more of that. Um, all right. So, Brian, I think that's a great place for us to, to wrap on today. So thank you for, for chatting today. And uh, thank you all for listening to this episode of the podcast. If you enjoyed it, please do leave a sincere five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or whatever platform you use to listen to the show. And, of course, for more resources to help you focus your ministry on the gospel, please visit gospelproject.com.